This is Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz, and you are listening to Mastermind. You are now See now where my limit is. Only got no oh It's like they just wanna see you struggle. I swear they don't wanna see you shine. They don't. It's like they just want you to bleed and they want you to fall. They don't want you to be with the streets up there. Welcome to Mastermind, the home of black excellence and self mastery. Yes, your host, Mr. G. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self mastery. Our next guest is an activist and an award-winning associate professor of English education at Teachers College, Columbia University. She's also founder and faculty sponsor of the Racial Literacy Boundaries Roundtables series and co-founder of the Teachers College Civic Participation Project. Her research focuses on racial literacy and teacher education, Black girl literacies, as well as Black and Latinx male high school students. She appeared in Spike Lee's Two Fist Up, We Gonna Be Alright, a documentary about the Black Lives Matter movement. She's also an author with many books, including her co-author books, Advanced in Racial Literacies and Teacher Education, Purposeful Teaching and Learning in Diverse Contexts, Teacher Education and Black Communities, and her poetry books, Love from the Vortex and the Peace Chronicles. She's a recent recipient of the David H. Russell Award for Distinguished Research in English Education. Let's welcome today Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz to the program. Dr. Ruiz, how are you doing today? Well, hello there. How are you doing? I am. What a beautiful introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, well deserved, man. You've been just doing work for us for a long time and just really appreciate the work that you're doing. And it is difficult I work. I appreciate you too. Can I just say I appreciate the work that you're doing? Because this is deep work to uh you know, research people to be deliberate about who you invite in, the messages that you're thinking of crafting for the audience and who you think may be the right voices for that. That takes time and commitment and energy. And so I thank you for your work. Man, I want to just keep saying the pleasure is mine. I do appreciate, you know, what you're doing. And I'm inspired by, you know, people like you, because I think when we get in these type of specific spaces. And I know you've heard this type of talk. Well, you know, you shouldn't really focus on race and it's a construct anyway. So why even paid any attention? You know, they just made this up so that we can just focus on this. And the real thing is this, or the real thing is that, and it kind of drives you into this state of like, well, is this really what I should be, you know, focusing my energy on? And when I see work like your work and um, the amount of energy that you put into it and what you're promoting, it just reminds me that this is the space that we're supposed to be in. So I thank you. Mm, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, man. So um, it has been a long couple of years, like with the pandemic. And um, I know you Woo! you do quite your research on education as it relates to black children. And we all know what was happening in education prior to the pandemic with black children. Um, and even during you know the pandemic, um, you know, you heard a lot about the the educational gap widening. You know, you had a lot of white parents that were looking for like individualized education with their kids and um, providing all type of different, you know, things and parenting groups and stuff like that. And a lot of black families struggling. I mean, it was televised, it was on the news and things like that. And kind of since things have died down, you know, I don't want to say after the pandemic, but, you know, we're in a state right now where I guess things are beginning to become normalized. And things have calmed down. Um, where 
do you kind of see the state of education for black children right now? And what do you think Mm. has to be done? Oh, yeah, it's not really different. Well, first, I'll say that black families have been fighting for equitable education for their babies since integration. I think it's just safe to say that. So people don't think that black families or parents are just passive. The issue is that the system is so deeply entrenched and it shifts that sometimes it's so difficult to figure out, okay, what are we going to attack first? But when we're not really at the table and what's interesting now, brother, I want to say is at least by looking at it in New York City, we're at the table. The chancellor's black. The deputy chancellor's black. The mayor is black. These programs like My Brother's Keeper, My Sister's Keeper are prominent. One of my dear friends, uh, a wonderful teacher um, in New York City, Lanice Eversley, said this is like the Wakanda for education. <laughs> But even with that, in the same way we had Obama in the White House, we have to understand that the system is still very white and the white supremacist structure is what undergirds all of it. So where are things for us now? I think what the pandemic did for us in a positive way, I'm talking about black folks, is that it just kind of pulled the curtain back and also being able to see um, and literally be in the classroom with their students to hear some of the microaggressions that their, their children were subjected to, to see some of the teachers, not all teachers, because we want to support the teachers that are doing the right thing. But those teachers that had those racist beliefs, those racist comments, the parents saw it front and center. And so there has been an elevation of our consciousness. And then with the pandemic and Zoom and online conferences and, you know, being, you could turn on your computer and be in the presence of Angela Davis. Like that really has done something for us. So not so much that the state of education has changed, but I think black people have continued to change. And I think we're a bit more bold and we're willing to speak up in this face of inequity in probably ways that mirrored mostly the 1960s. Mm. Man, that's that's that gave me some chills a little bit right there thinking about that, you know, because Mm -hmm. we all know how significant those times were and how much change occurred within, you know, between the 1960s and now. Um, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, I'm seeing it in person. (laughs) So a lot of the things that you talk about, you know, I'm seeing live action. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that is accurate. Um, we're going to dive into some more of that, but before we dive into it, one of the things that you like to start your, um, lectures with is that, you know, you acknowledge that we are on stolen land. So I wanted to ask you why, why it is that that you do that and the significance of just remembering that. Well, thank you for asking that. I would say about five years ago, I was part of a team at Teachers College that started this Reimagining Education Institute. Be lovely to have you as a guest this summer. We'll, we'll check that out. Chris Emden has been part of it. I've been part of it. Felicia Mormensa, Mark Gooden, some wonderful folks, Erica Walker, um, mostly black folk. Um, and there are some white, you know, brothers and sisters who are down for the struggle who are part of this as well. So one year, uh, Dr. Angela Valenzuela, an incredible critical theorist, was the keynote speaker. And she opened up with a land acknowledgement with indigenous music, really paying homage to the Lene Lenape, which is the land on which Columbia University is. And I never really thought about it. And ever since I had that experience, I've been 
making sure that I open with land acknowledgement or what I do, depending on where I'm going, I will look for an indigenous person or group that can do the land acknowledgement. If I cannot find someone, at the very least, I will recognize the land on which we're standing, the stolen land that they're standing on, I'm standing on, if it's in Zoom, and I will take a moment of silence. And so I have to thank Sister Angela Valenzuela because what it also does is to pause to remind people, you do not own this land. You do not own, you may have a house here and a house there, but it is not your land. None of this is our land. And when we talk about Africans, we didn't ask to come here either. But Native Americans, the original Americans were here. And so at the very least, we must acknowledge their presence. So that's what inspired me. And I continue to do so. I think it's uh, super important to acknowledge that because I think it's a lot of, you know, some it's a lot that we don't even really think about because of just things being normalized. You know, people say this is white people's land or we're on white land or whatever it is, but um, not understanding the history or thinking about the history because it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. So I like the fact that you make us kind of remember that and be in that moment. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, yes. All right. Mm. Uh, Before we dive into, you know, some of your work within the educational space, I kind of wanted to get into a little bit of pretty much who you are and how you got into everything. When I hear Yolanda Celia Ruiz, I think about maybe a mixture of some different cultures. I know you are from the South Bronx and everything. So can you, t- <laughs> can you, um, I'm connected to South Bronx. That's where I started my teaching. You are? Yeah, oh my like, gosh. Which school? Do you mind me asking? Started, what, what avenue? What street? I started teaching on, in Home Street, Dr. Richard Escudo Health and Science Charter wow. School. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Um, uh, that endears, you know, the Bronx. Yeah. RIP to, um, junior is the same school that the, the young man junior was, um, was killed. Um, yeah. So, um, thinking about you, you in the South Bronx and just the name, can you dive into first the, the name, like what cultures that name represents and then your experiences growing up in the South Bronx, man? Well, I'll tell you, I'm actually 25 poems in to my third book, which is a poetic memoir called Growing Up Bronx. Mm. And um, it's an odyssey. I go all the way back. I think I'm starting at age nine, however far back that my memories take me. And I came of age in the 1980s in the South Bronx at the height of the crack epidemic when Reagan called our women welfare queens at the same time pouring drugs into our communities and cutting back financial aid and TAP and all of these different things that were happening. But the focus of the book is really talking about the love of my community, the love of my parents. And that really is what kept us love for each other, love for hip hop. And so I'm going through that odyssey, but the name Yolanda, actually my name was supposed to begin with the letter D, uh, but I was born the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm. And so my parents named me after his daughter, Yolanda. My father is Edgar, rest his soul, and my mother is Elsie. So they were the E's and the siblings were supposed to be D's. I have a brother, David, a sister, Donna, and I was supposed to be Dina. But when Martin Luther King was murdered in April of that year, and I was born in October, 
they decided that, okay, she must be named Yolanda. And I think that that marked me, brother, for the work that I do in very significant ways. Uh, the Sealy is uh, Bayesian. My father is from ba- a Bayesian descent, the um, island of Barbados. My mother grew up uh, in Auburn, Alabama, the South. And the Ruiz, I am now divorced, but my um, husband, the father of my daughter, Olivia, is Puerto Ricanio. Uh-huh. And so I grew up with Blacks and Puerto Ricans, some Haitians, but mostly Puerto Ricans and Blacks in that community. And so naturally, as I was falling in love, it, it was destined to be a Black boy or a Puerto Rican boy. And so now you know which one I chose. So that's the history of, of those names. But the name Yolanda, I carry it very close to my heart. And I think they marked me in many ways to do the work that I do. Mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense, man. Um, it makes sense why you're doing the work you're doing, the, the power of the name. Um, so, you know, much of the work that you're doing lies within the education system and racism. Um, so what was your educational experience in the South Bronx? And then one question I know that you ask your, your students is when did you first become aware of race and what was your first experiences of race growing up? Well, brother, you do your homework so deeply. (laughs) These are like deep exercises in my teaching. And my experience, I think, is probably like most kids still growing up in the South Bronx where they're not with teachers that have a racial consciousness. Um, I actually have one. So when I say most experiences, just about all of my teachers were white and all of the kids were black and Latino, right? So much of like in certain areas in the South Bronx, you still see that today. Certain areas in Manhattan, Brooklyn, you still see that. Uh, I had this one teacher, well, I'm still in contact with him, 40 something years later, maybe even more. And uh, he believed in me, um, which is why teachers are so significant. But if they can get past their racism and get past the stereotypes that they hold about children according to their zip code or what their family may or may not be, um, it's really an amazing impact that we have. And so I had many teachers that impacted me, but this one in particular in elementary school, Mr. Hoffman, just believed in me and just would put me in the weather club or put me in storytelling contest and just said, you know, you're great, you're smart, you're wonderful, chose me to be valedictorian of eighth grade. So I think it shouldn't have to be that way, that our children shouldn't have to hope and pray for like that one or two teachers that would see something in them. The system should recognize, as Goldie Muhammad said, the genius in all of us, so that my experience with Mr. Hoffman should be the experience of all children. And it, it wasn't the case for most of my classmates, and it isn't the case for most children in schools now. So here it is, 40-something, maybe almost 50 years later, that's because the structure is so enduring that we can still see that there's predominantly white teachers and black and brown students that shows the fidelity of that racist white supremacist system. That's what we have to continue to dismantle, to work against, and to speak against, even if it's not changing as quickly as we want it to change. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so when when did you start becoming aware of your race? Just as a kid, did you have an awareness like, yo, all my teachers are white? Like, where, where are black teachers at? Like, where <laughs> were you of that mindset? Was it a normalized thing? Um, what was your experiences thinking and dealing with race at that young age? 
Yeah, I think it was normalized that it was just like teachers are white and kids are black until I saw, <laughs> I might have been 13, and I was watching a television program with my mother and there was a woman, a black woman being interviewed. And you know how you have the name and the status and the education that goes below the name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I saw this woman, really smart, of course, and I saw a PhD. And I, I made a connection that she was super smart and she had these three letters. And I know as crazy as it sounds and as surface level as it sounds, that's the day I decided I was going to get a PhD. Mm. That's the day I decided I was going to be a teacher. And the woman might have been a teacher. It all happened at 13. And although I ended up going into corporate America for actually 13 years, this magic number 13, I'm just realizing that now, I knew at 13 that I was going to be a teacher, but everyone said teachers don't make money. And so I recognized that the first thing I needed to do as soon as possible was to get a job and to make money to help my family, like to help my father, who was a pharmacist on the island of Barbados, but came here and could barely get a job, you know, was a numbers runner, worked in liquor stores. You know, my mom, who left the South at 16, and came here and put her own education aside until she was 45, took care of her mother, raised us. And so there was very early on, I felt this um, responsibility. And so, of course, at that time, we were all looking for summer youth jobs. And I started working at 14 and haven't looked back since. So I've always felt this pressure to help the family. So even at 13, working at Martin Luther King Center Clinic at 14, I, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher, but I also was very influenced when people said, you won't make money. And so that in some ways deterred me. But even when I was in corporate America, you know what I did? The pull was so strong. I was teaching at night. I had to be in a classroom. And what were you doing I in, like in uh, corporate America, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, yeah, sure. I worked for the New York Times. I worked for Business Week. And uh, believe it or not, I was the first director of marketing for uh, black director of marketing for NYU School of Continuing and Professional wow. Studies. Now, now people so, might really like just like, wait, wait, what? You were doing all of that? Yes. Like I could just see my students, some of my students like, yo, you really wanted to just be a teacher? Like you just wanted to give that up and teach? The most noble profession in the world. <laughs> and I couldn't run from it. So even though, yes, I was in corporate and at the time, many, many years ago, being 25 years old and making like $26,000 a year, when you come from, you know, growing up on welfare and all of this, like that's a lot of money, but it still was not enough to make me not want to teach. And um, this is why I can say now that I am going into my 29th year of teaching because I was teaching at night, even when I was working for corporate in the daytime. Mm. Well, that's powerful. Um, when did you kind of like decide that I can't do this corporate thing anymore? I got to go 100% all in on this teaching thing. And what was your experience? Corporate is so racist, brother. It's, it's, they really don't want us there. Mm. Most places don't want us there, but they really don't want us there. Not when we're smart and we're, if we're there to be the secretary and we're there to like play those stereotypical roles. Um, but it could be that it's the Bronx in me. There was something that's always been in me. That's never been afraid and never, not afraid to put myself out there. And in corporate, they just didn't want 
to give me that opportunity. So many times I was shut down and yet I saw white girls go out on maternity leave and come back and be promoted to manager. And I'm writing, literally writing these presentations and bringing in $400,000 contracts, million dollar contracts, because I learned the trade of like, I was doing marketing and promotion and learning how to write those decks to uh, encourage Brooks Brothers to advertise in the New York Times and Paragon, you know, all of these big corporations and writing this stuff to bring in money. And yet I would never get those large bonuses because when it was time for me to get the bonus, suddenly I would be shifted to a new team that really had low revenue. And so I began to piece these things together, mostly because I had a mentor, Leroy, a brother who is uh, in the nation of Islam. He was a fruit of Islam, but he was working at the New York Times. And he began to really tell me about the racism and started opening my eyes. And so I'm grateful for corporate America because I call it my boot camp for life. And that's really when I was faced with deep racism, you know, Conscious of how I wore my hair. I was wearing braids at the time and comments that would be made about my hair. You know, all of those things that corporate America, it is the most devilish and racist just incubator. It's a representation of capitalism in America. And so naturally you're going to get all of that in there. Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. Did you know right away that you wanted to be in the college setting or did you, I know you dabbled in high school and night school and things like that. So, um, what, what I had no clue. You didn't, you didn't know. Okay. It was a fluke. I didn't, you know, I'm, I look up and I'm like, wow, how did I get here? I knew I wanted the, my PhD. So I, I didn't make the connection between PhDs and working in the college. Right. And as we know, there are folks who have PhDs and they're in corporations. They, they do stuff nonprofits. I didn't have any of this language, right? But I think it started when I was in my PhD program and one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Oliver Patterson, he said, well, you know, this is a teacher education program because he would say, well, what do you want to do, yo? I said, I don't really know. Because remember, I was in corporate America for 13 years. And that's when he said, you know what? You should really teach teachers. And that became the became my trajectory of really embracing that I was in a teacher education program and starting to move forward. But even then, I have to tell you, it wasn't until, uh, you know, my life is not linear. So it's hard to tell a linear story because so many people have impacted me. And as a Libra, I'm open, extremely open. And I literally do go in different directions if the spirit leads me to do that. It's your story. And so I, I, I've had these moments in my life that I've taken the risk. And one of those risks was I was working for, my gosh, I think it was NYU. I was a research associate, brother. I had my PhD and I was a research associate. And I was conducting interviews in Ossining, New York. And I realized I had my team and I was there and we were interviewing one day this parent and the parent called my name. And this was before I introduced myself. And I looked at her and I said, Mickey Shaw. And I'd been sitting across from my practicum teacher from 18 wow. years ago. <laughs> when I tell you God has a story and a plan. And so she said, wow, you really should come teach for us at Teachers College. You have your Ph.D., 
you really should come and teach some adjunct classes for us. So I said, oh, that's nice, but I'm actually happy at NYU doing this work around disproportionality, working with Pedro Noguera, doing all of this stuff, trying to get our babies declassified from special ed, from being disproportionately placed there. So I had a mission. Then a few weeks later, I started getting a call from my senior professor from many years ago too. Mickey said, she saw you. Why don't you come teach for us? First time? Oh, no, no, thank you. I'm fine. Then I started having problems with my boss, not Pedro, another person. I got another call. I said, no, I'm okay. I'm fine. Then I had a blowout with him. I got that third call and I said, yes, I'm coming. So I walked away from my job at Metro Center for a temporary 15 month position at Teachers College, Columbia University. And of course, you know, I'm now tenured. I was the first tenured in that department in 25 years. Um, so the rest is history. But, but I say all this to your listeners about knowing who we are and believing in ourselves, no matter where we come from, because you never know where you can go. If you have direction, if you believe in, for me, God is very strong in my life. My family is very strong and I have a sense of self. When you have that, you're willing to take risk. And let me tell you, I had everything to gain and nothing to lose. So why not? Why not go for broke, as James Baldwin would say? Powerful, powerful. Now, one of the things that you advocate for um, with your students is something you created and designed called the archaeology of the self. Um, mm -hmm. And you say that this should be done prior to even stepping foot inside the classroom. Did you have that established prior to stepping foot inside um, the classroom in which you teach? Did you do that on your own? And then what did that look like for you? Like, what did you find? Yeah, I didn't have the language. I didn't have the language. I actually always give props to one of my doctoral students, former doctoral students. He left the program, um, Moises Lopez. And um, I had it in practice, but I didn't have the language. I was also a culturally responsive educator. Before I ever read Geneva Gay or Gloria Latson Billings, they gave me the language to understand the type of teacher I was. I was, I've always taught out of a space of love and compassion and seeing my students and seeing their amazing possibilities. But in terms of arc of self, I remember because I always try to put my students on, particularly students of color. No one really gives them the opportunity to teach. So I always went out of my way to make sure that I had students of colors as TAs even if I paid them out of my own pocket. And so Moises, I set him up to teach my class but bef and, and Brennan. But before like having them go into teaching, I said, well, let me talk about or let me hear from you. What was it like being in my class? And this was the diversity class where we talked about all things, race, culture, sexual orientation, religion, everything. And then Moises said, you know, it's kind of like doing this excavation of myself. Like, I feel like you're asking me to dig deep. And then from there, it just kind of came to me. Oh, you're doing like archaeology of self. But I have to give props to my student who started with that excavation language. And then I said, okay, archaeology of self. And, you know, these things come to you. And then I hooked up with Dr. Angela Costa, who helped me to visualize the racial literacy development pyramid of which archaeology of self is a central component. And I've been learning, brother, each time I do a professional development, each time I write an article, 
I learn more about the theory and practice. So I'm still, I'm still doing the excavation of me and excavation of that particular theory. Right. So um, the archaeology itself involves like this huge self dig and you're digging out some of your biases and some of your preconceived notions and beliefs and things of that sort. Now we know within the education system is predominantly white women um, and white in general. So I'm guessing you do get a lot of, of white teachers that have become teachers that you're teaching to do the, um, the, the self dig. Um, what have you found to be some common biases that some of these upcoming teachers and even current teachers um, have when it comes to black students and black children? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, first I want to say it's always a shock for them to recognize that they hold these biases mm. because a lot of this stuff is so subconscious. Like when you asked me about when did you know you wanted to be a teacher or what did you notice? It's like, no, teachers are white and students are black. So it's like fish in water. Right. And so asking people to make this pause and really look at themselves, it's always a shock. It's always um, something that rocks them. But the stereotypes that most white teachers have about our children is that we're not set to work hard. Like we really just want it to be easy. We're honestly not as smart as other children, in part because our parents don't read to us or there are no books in our homes, or we're watching TV, we're not reading books. Like people are still holding on to this. It's also the very pernicious kind of culture of poverty, as though poor people can't be brilliant, right? So there's this thing that's believed if you're poor. Now, what happens when you're poor is that you're really locked out of opportunities that can open you up and flourish, because you have all of these talents within you. But if you don't have something to unlock it and sharpen it and and have it bloom, then of course it's going to lay dormant. So many of our children are black and brown children who are deliberately put in schools that are underfunded or don't have the teachers that should be there. Um, they have all of this like genius inside of them that's waiting to get out. But somehow teachers equate like this lack of money or marginalization economically with not being smart instead of really seeing the system is what kind of keeps children down from getting opportunities for them to flourish. Um, many of them have stereotypes about um, our homes, you know, single mom. They never even think about single dads. And we know that we know that there's a lot of our brothers who are raising our children for different reasons. Um, so that stereotype, these same stereotypes, quite honestly, that folks have been holding on for decades, because it's much easier to hold on to a stereotype than actually to get to know the child in front of you. And so that's what I'm finding them not understanding the power of having to develop relationships. And so they lean back on the stereotypes and you know why it happens, brothers. Like I all, when I do PDs, I said, if you knew teachers about how, if it weren't for black people, you would not have some of the advancements that you have every day. You would not have a cell phone. You would not have a refrigerator. There would be no traffic lights. You'd be crashing all in the street. You would not have light in your home because we created the filament of the light bulb. You would not be able to drive your car because we created the carburetor. You would not be able to iron your clothes because we created the ironing board and the iron. And young ladies who have menstrual periods every month, it was a black woman who created the sanitary napkin so that you can, you know, keep, you know, your body clean every month. Going through COVID, 
The hand sanitizer. Do you know that it was a Latino scientist who created that? And so I always say, you know, and this is why children can't see beyond the stereotypes because they're not giving the alternative of the geniuses that actually do exist. The, I, the father of the internet is a Nigerian, Philip Mgwale. But we know Steve Jobs. We know Bill Gates. So if you're not putting in, if you're not getting this in your teacher ed program, you're not respecting blackness and black people because you think that all they're doing is trying to get on welfare and, and to get money. You're not thinking that without them, you would not have these advantages that you have in your life. And if you knew it, you would have a different level of respect. That is powerful. That's the problem. No, you're absolutely right. Now, let's say you have an open um, white up and coming teacher that is honest about their biases and things of that sort. Um, yeah, they're there. Mm-hmm. Where, what, 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 what does it look like in the classroom? Them actually teaching black children in the correct way um, and kind of, I wouldn't say eliminating their biases, but not really responding to them in the, in the, in the classroom. Is that a possibility? Is that something that can happen? And then what, what does that look like? It's a lot of work. That's a lot of work because, you know, they have the heart, but they also are inundated daily with these stereotypes. And that's when they click into the savior mode, right? I think that we have been, Black folks and scholars and teachers have really been resisting that a lot. Mm. I'm not hearing that as much as I did, let's say, even 10 years ago, because I just tell my st- teachers straight up, you can't save anybody. You can barely save yourself. So and that's why I tell them you need to start with therapy and you know make sure you do that internal work. It's a lot of hard work because even if they believe it deeply and they do their best in their classrooms to have not just equity and equality, but justice in the classroom. When they go back into their worlds, which are predominantly white, their home worlds, the people they hang out with, this is something you cannot look at black children like they're an experiment in a a Petri dish, that you're going to treat them a certain way when you're in the classroom environment and there are no black people in your life. You don't have uh, intimate relationships and friends with black people black adults, you you live in segregated neighborhoods, then it just becomes in some ways, not that it can't happen, but it becomes very surface level because you don't really have that deep appreciation for blackness in the same way you would if you lived around black people as well as worked around black people and been part of the communities. So to some extent, it can never really go deep, deep, you know, unless it's a teacher that's been practicing and living it and manifesting it you know, this appreciation for blackness in their lives. I think that is really what it is going to take. And you see how much work that is, because we're basically saying to people, you have to move very differently in your life. Um, and, and that is how your practice will really be changed. Right. Now, some deeply, some of the stereotypes and um, just ideologies about black people run deep, even for us. Um, do you find that some of these beliefs are in up and coming black teachers as well. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm always talking to them about their colonized mindsets mm. because you can, of course, love yourself, love your people, but somehow, and this is where class comes in too. If you're a black teacher and you have this salary now, you may not be rich or wealthy, but you have some steady income. You're no longer poor. Let's just say that. 
And then that in some ways makes you separate yourself if you are teaching children of marginalized economic backgrounds. You don't exactly see yourself in them as much. And so you begin to treat them differently, right? And you begin to take on some of these ideological practices that you see white folks doing that, you know, they're poor, so they do this. And we can do that. We can have a colonized mindset. And that's why, you know, when we think about it, I, I want to mention Ngugiwe Thiongo, this incredible Nigerian writer who talks about decolonizing the mind. So what I say to black teachers in my PDs, you have to decolonize your mind because you have gone through a colonial school system as well. Whether it is specifically pushing forward white ideology or even erasing what your black history is, you've gone through that system. Unless you've gone to college and taken ethnic studies or African-American studies, or like we were talking before the show, join a program like the Schomburg Junior Scholars where you're deliberately focusing on the nuance, the beauty, the characteristics of your culture, everything around you is white. So you have to be aware of that and interrupt that. And many of us, when we get of a certain economic stature, we believe some of these colonized ideas about some of us who are not as um, economically advantaged. So it, it's, it, it happens in a very insidious way. I definitely do see that. Um, it's sad, isn't it sad? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes like, you know, you'll, well, I have approached some black teachers about the, um, the need to teach a certain way to, to black children and what they, needs to be done. And some, some of them have fought it and just said that, well, black children, our black children need the same thing that white children need. So, the same thing that I would do in a you know white classroom is what mm-hmm. I'm going to do with our kids, and that's how they catch mm-hmm. up, and that's how they you know um, that's how we we um, limit that that educational gap and close it or whatever. So, what what is your take on that? Do do black children no. need the same thing? That's very backwards in a sense because black children, white children, have not endured the same violence and trauma that black children have at the hands of schools. And so at the very minimum, it first has to be acknowledged. Listen, we're still here. We still show up. We keep coming at it. It's not like we're looking for anyone to give us a handout. We just want people to get out of our way so that we can access what everybody else gets. But that's not the case. So in pretending that I'm going to, the colorblind effect is really what's happening. I'm going to teach my white children in the same way I teach my black children is completely negating and ignoring the 400 years of history that is the generational legacy for black children that still impacts them in healthcare and jobs and the juvenile justice system. So to want to pretend and say, Oh, everybody's equal because they are and not pay attention to the systems that have been deliberately put in place to keep us from being equal is, um, it's just not real. Mm. Definitely agree with that. Um, part of, I guess, the teaching process within teaching black children that you uh, talk about is uh, this thing called racial literacy. So can you explain exactly you know, where it came from, what it is, and um, what it kind of looks like in the classroom? Sure. So this conversation we're having, brother, is a racially literate conversation. 
like the questions that you're asking me, it is so clear. You are someone, you know who you are, whose you are. You're aware of the society. You're aware of how it impacts education. And so we can cut to the chase on some things. That's the idea of racial literacy. The way that I've theorized it is you know, to be able to have constructive conversations about race and racism. And for black people in particular, to not fall into a victim stance because of all that's happened to us. And for white people in particular, to understand the unfair advantages that they have been given and to take an anti-racist stance. So it is both a theory, but also an action. When you learn about this, you have to do something about it. You learn about stuff, you're creating a podcast so that you can build the critical consciousness and the racial literacy of your listeners, right? So there has to be an action involved. Um, the field is relatively new, starting really in 2003 with sociologist Francis Wendance Twine, who was a black, a, a, a Crete and, and black woman who was working with white women in Britain who were married to black men. So there's this, this, this very interesting cohort of white women, all married to black men, and they began to notice how their biracial children were being treated differently, i.e. given less than than the white children in the school. And so what Frances Twine said was that when they got together sharing these experiences, this was like they were building their racial literacy. They were having these conversations so that they could be literate, they could be skilled in how to deal with the school. So in 2004, the next year, Lonnie Guineer, we know she was supposed to be the first ever black secretary of education under the Clinton administration. The country was too racist to have that. But she was the first to get um, black woman to be tenured at Harvard University. So she was she's now passed away a legal strategist. And she was very good friends with Derek Bell. Actually, she was mentored by Derek Bell. And, um, you know, Derek Bell was very deep into analyzing Brown versus Board of Education. Many people think that that is such a wonderful decision. It's all we've got. But Brown versus Board of Education was a failure because, in fact, what it created was a tracking system for our black children. It further enhanced the white elite and it even marginalized poor white children. Right. Because poor white children were thrown in with the black children. We know we lost black teachers because schools were integrated, right. black principals. Mm -hmm. It was devastation for us. And so Derek Bell spent much of his career really analyzing Brown versus Board of Education. So in 2004, Lonnie Guineer comes out with this piece called, you know, Brown versus Board of Education from racial liberalism to racial literacy, because white liberalists as Liberals, as Martin Luther King loved to say, they always love to talk about, you know, brotherly love. But, you know, you're they're not going to give up anything for you to get something, your child to get something. And so this idea of being liberal and open is not the same as being literate. That would push you to taking an action. And so that was in the legal field, this call for racial literacy. And then from there, there are other scholars, Alison Skerritt, uh, Rebecca Rogers, Melissa Mosley, Jane Bolgatz. I even look at someone like Spike Lee using the medium of film to build racial literacy. And I entered the conversation in 2011 and have been writing on that ever since. Mm. Now, um, a lot of people struggle with the idea of 
we want to preserve these babies innocence, right? Like we don't want to put, to, to give them this world and how it really is. Like let's have them have their childhood. And then later on, we'll teach them about this stuff. So when do you start with the racial literacy? When is it too early? Is there a such thing as too early? Like how does that look like for your children? In this country, it's never too early. And I'm going to give you two reasons why. First of all, Ruby Bridges at six years old integrated New Orleans school. It was called every kind of N-word, tomatoes thrown at her, everything. Six years old. When people say that to me, in my PDs, I often show this video of a two and a half year old white girl. I think she's from Australia. And her mom, she clearly has eaten this box of cookies, this cakes, angel food cakes. You can see it. It's all on on the internet. I found it on Instagram and had like 3 million hits and comments galore within like three weeks. This was many years ago. So the mother's interrogating her daughter who ate this box of Mrs. Kipling's. And the daughter is like, oh man, I'm in trouble. I got to come up with something. She's no more than two, two and a half. You know what she says? It was a black man who broke into their home and ate the box of cakes at two, two and a half. So when people tell me that children are too young, no, because you know what? Either they are seeing stereotypes through cartoons. We all know the history of Walt Disney cartoons, of caricatures of black people and Chinese people. We see the whiteness of cartoons now. So even if the stereotypes are not the same as they were years ago, there's the erasure of black characters. I mean, we're we're seeing now a proliferation of more you know, black cartoons, because this is what we've been fighting for. But children and in the books, there was a study in 2015. And then again, in 2018, looking at the characters in children's books, there were more animals represented in children's books than Latino, Asian American, and black all combined. <laughs> You had more like rats and rabbits and everything even, than those three <laughs> populations combined. Even How in are the animal, going to be able, even in the animals, animal books, there are white children in there. And even in the animal books, there are white children. So we have to see it's in everything. And so our babies, from the time we open up books and we're reading with them, who's holding the letters? The ABC, right? They either see themselves or they don't. So it's never too early to start. Mm. And I'm, I'm glad that you're saying that it's, it's good when somebody who's well-researched says things like this and it's not like, you know, well, you know, I don't want to damage my child and, you know, damage. this racism stuff. The is damage is already here. Exactly. What we're trying to do is do undo the damage. Exactly. We're trying to build their consciousness so they don't go out in the world and think there's something wrong with them. And when we don't talk about it and don't give them the language, they will think there's something wrong with them because it happens at home when the white children hear their white parents say things and then the white children come and say the things to the children on the playground. That's the first part of when the pain starts. So we have to be talking with our black children, our brown children, our indigenous children to prepare them for what they're going to hear or they will really think that their skin looks like doo-doo, which is what they say. Right. Or your hair looks like straw. We have to have those conversations early. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, so what do you say to the teacher that is listening in and they're like, um, Dr. Reese, you're making a lot of sense. 
teaching racial literacy, being an activist as a teacher, being a disruptor and everything. However, within this educational system, they're telling me I have to worry about these state exams. Um, I'm working around predominantly white people that are not interested in racial literacy and learning about blackness and this and that and the third. And I have a family like I have, you know, people that are relying on me for income and this and that. I don't want to stir the pot. Like, I don't want to risk the chance of not getting tenure or getting fired. Although this sounds like a good idea, I I can't afford to really get into this. Well, first thing I would say is, number one, you know, thank you for being a teacher because that is a noble profession. But if it's all of those but, 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 you probably shouldn't be a teacher. And, And I say that very, very seriously. Because being a teacher, like being a doctor, being a nurse, these are services to humans. This is, these are the human professions. And those require special people who are willing to, as James Baldwin would say, put something on the line. You are purposely saying, I am choosing a profession where I am serving others, that I'm trying to heal others, that I am choosing to love others. And with that healing, And with that love comes deep responsibility and will take you outside of your comfort zone. So what I would probably say to them is, well, why did you choose to become a teacher? And particularly if you're teaching children in communities who have been marginalized historically, and we know the history, I would first also ask them, what's your historical literacy? Because when you know the history and you still choose to teach in the South Bronx, You're going to have to come up with a different answer than I want to, I want to, but, and that's part of why the system is stuck in the mire of the status quo, because teachers really do love children. They do want to serve folks, but as soon as they hit that wall and it either becomes their paycheck on the child, the ego drives to make you or make the teacher make that decision for themselves. Yes, there are those who come along and they do put it on the line, but that is not the norm. That is not the norm. And and I'm not saying it's an easy thing, but it is also not an easy choice to decide that you're going to serve others. Service, like when you decide to go into the army, you know that you are signing to perhaps put your life on the line. You are giving service to a country that says, if the country goes to war, you know what you've signed up for. So when you are going to teach in a racist system, you have to understand what you're signing up for and whom you're serving. Mm. Well said. I, I like that, um, the service thing, man. Because people don't understand what's at stake with war, right? You know what I mean? And and they know what they have to do. So that, that makes so much sense. Thank you for that. You're welcome, brother. And we're all servants. We really are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, I wanted to ask you about your experience, just, you know, diving into some other avenues outside of just the teaching. I know, you know, you got that call from Spike Lee um, to be a part of uh, the documentary. Um, so what was just, you know, that how has that experience been for you diving into oh some, some other realms of teaching? And I wonder, too, how you balance everything. I mean, you're writing poetry, you're writing um, textbooks. Yeah, speaking with, uh, you know, t- people that are going to be teachers, providing them with, you know, all of your time. You're at dissertation um, meetings and this and that. 
Um, raising a daughter. Raising a daughter. Of a wife. Yes. <laughs> I mean, not not a wife. I mean, my mother. You know. Yeah. yeah. How 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 do you balance all of that? And then also too about mm-hmm. your experience working with Spike Lee. Sure. So let me just say that Spike working with Spike Lee changed my life literally because that documentary then led me to others. Um, I'm grateful to have been in another documentary that came out in January 2022 and was premiered. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it's been in black film festivals. The creators are not black. Um, they're called connect with kids and they do documentaries specifically around black and Latino boys. And so the film is defining us children at the crossroads of change mm. and being part of that documentary. I'm now going to be interviewed for another documentary actually this Friday on black girls. So Spike Lee is a genius, hands down, quick wit, brilliant mind, incredible vision. And it was really powerful because the day that I was being interviewed at his 40 acres in a mule studio, um, I had just kind of walked by Opal Tometi, one of the three sisters who started the Black Lives Matter movement, right? So just being in that space, in that moment, being with Spike and being part of his vision was life-changing. Getting the call was life-changing participating in that. And it opened up in me a a confidence, right? About being able to talk on screen because he didn't have to do any takes. Like everything was first take the way that we're talking here. He just knew how to open something up in me. So that has been phenomenal, phenomenal in terms of how do I balance it? And how do I do all of this? I will tell you, and I say this to your listeners, you have to find a way to do what you love. Because when you're doing what you love, even when it is difficult at times, sometimes I get tired of, you know, hearing racist things. Like I'm patient because I want people to be able to say it to me because that level of vocalizing it means that they're working through it. But sometimes it's hard to repeatedly hear some of the things that people have been taught about black people, about brown people. It's, it's, it's like a fatiguing type of thing. But because I believe in what I do and I think that I can make changes, I keep on going. And it's exciting to me when I do see someone change or I hear about that school that's made an advancement or that principal that is now buying, you know, books of people of color and 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 getting PDs and the black teachers and the Latino teachers are having more of a voice. I'm like, okay, you know, this is all worth it. And that's honestly what keeps me going. What keeps me balanced is my belief in God. I stay on the ground. I always think about the South Bronx. Because when you know where you're from, you know where you're going. And I recognize that, you know, it's important to eat well, to rest, to meditate. And so as I've gotten older, I also take care of my body in a different kind of way. And I know when it's time to stop. But it, it took a while to get me there. I will also say this, that writing those two poetry books changed me. I can't quite figure out exactly how I've changed, but I'm different. I have a different relationship with death, a different relationship with love. Um, that, and sometimes it does get overwhelming, but it always feels like I'm doing my purpose. Mm. Yeah. And that gives me ease. 
Yeah, your your first book, um, Love from the Vortex, it does sound like an archaeological dig. You know, just just listening to it and listening to the way that you really talk about your relationships and what was gained, what was lost and um how you found peace, like it it seems like that dig that you talk about. You know, but thank you for saying that. And I think that's why I'm able also to do the work now that I'm thinking about your comment. It's very difficult to ask someone to do something you're not willing to do. And in my teaching and in my PD, I try to never get in the habit to ask teachers to be vulnerable or to move forward in humility or to open up about something if I'm not willing to do it. And I think this might be why the work is catching on because those two books, those were independently published, miraculously sold almost 10,000 copies already. Can you imagine if I had a commercial publisher with like getting it in libraries and a marketing arm? I mean, that's what I'm trying for, for growing up Bronx. But I, I, there's a lot of people who put out books, who have bigger names than me, if, if people believe in that kind of stuff. And don't get the same impact. And what I'm beginning to think is that, and not saying that they're not authentic. I can only speak for myself. I know that I'm trying to live this life. I am not someone who's trying to say something and be something and do something differently. I think also because it is ultimately rooted in love, that that gives it a staying power and gives me a staying power that if it was just about like my ego, look how great my, read my articles, read my, mm -mm. I really want people to heal. I really want people to be less racist, less sexist. I think that it's not good for their souls and I want their souls to be healed. Mm. Powerful, man. Powerful. And I could feel that through, through your writing. So again, I do appreciate the, the amazing work that you are doing. Um, before we wrap up, I kind of want to get into a little activity here called what's your favorite identifying Uh-oh. a few of your favorite Uh-oh. things, getting to know you a little better. Uh-oh. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, what you're my favorite podcast now. Can I say that? <laughs> And I mean that. This has been an archaeological dig for me. You are brilliant. Oh, my God. Got me blushing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much. I appreciate that. Um, and mm-hmm. you made me ner- when When guests make me nervous, I know it's going to be a good interview. So you made me a little nervous today. I'm like, man, I got Dr. Louise <laughs> today. Man, I got to be on point. Uh, <laughs> I'm your sister. That's who I am. And I'm honored. This has been incredible for me. I just hope your 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 listeners you know, get something powerful out of it. That is what's most important to me. Indeed, indeed. I think anybody that listens will definitely get something powerful from this. Um, so yeah, getting into your favorite. Um, what has been the favorite lesson that you have taught and the favorite lesson that has been taught to you? Wow. The favorite lesson, the name story. And I want to thank a former student, now Dr. Shamari Reed, who introduced me to this poet, um, Mohammed Hassan. And it's a short video. You can get it on YouTube. It talks about unlearning his name. And because of the relationship I have with my name that I talked about, I always love hearing people talk about their name because it's connected to so many incredible cultural, sometimes religious, um, you know, artifacts that they have to excavate and stories that they tell. So I love teaching the name story. I love doing the name story. The lesson that was taught to me that I think was my favorite is contour drawing. 
And what contour drawing is, is that it's a partnered thing. So let's say you and I are here together and you have a piece of paper and a pencil. You have one minute to look at my face, to study my contours, my eye shape, everything, earrings I'm wearing. And then you have to close your eyes and you have to draw me with your eyes closed. And then you open your eyes and we both see what you've created. I remember having that in a, a writing class many, many years ago, and it always stuck with me. And you can just go with the whole metaphor of seeing someone, not seeing someone. Do our eyes really see? What do we see with? Um, and I should probably teach that lesson. I haven't taught that lesson in a number of years. Sounds like a, a good dialogue, like just, you know, talking about all that. Mm-hmm. Within the lesson. Yeah, and teachers, try it. Try the name story. I also pair it up with Sandra Cisneros, my name in the house on Mango Street. I pair it up because I am a multimodal teacher. So being a, a child of the hip hop era, uh, Diggable Planets has this video and song called, oh, no, this is where I'm from. I'm sorry. I'm mixing. I'm always <laughs> mixing it up. But I also do a where I'm from, which is a time tested and, you know, wonderful activity where I then bring in a poem by George Ella Lyons, a spoken word by Willie Perdomo, where I'm from, the Diggable Planets video, I'm from, and then I ask students to write where they're from, and then we create poems. Mm. That's another one of my favorites. Powerful. I, might, I might be stealing some of those. Steal it, <laughs> and I'll send you all the materials, whatever you need. Yes, yes, yes. Um, what has been your favorite movie or show that focused on education or the educational system? Wow. Well, I haven't yet seen Abbott Elementary and I'm excited uh, because I know that this is the first time that a black woman like would like win an Emmy like for writing a series. Um, You know, documentaries are important to me when I think about education. So my favorite would have to be uh, Beyond the Bricks. And this came out maybe about 10 or 12 years ago from uh, Washington Cohen Media. And I remember seeing it screened at the Schomburg and then there was a talk back after and I was so taken. I said, this film has to be shown all over the country. And I ended up getting involved with them. And in fact, those are the people that I'm going to be talking to after this call, Rita Washington and Derek Cohn. Um, but I really got it, uh, the film at TC. I screened it at TC we did a town hall where we went to Los Angeles. We went to uh, Atlanta. We went to different cities where we pulled in community members. We screened the film and then young people and community members did a talk back. So it was like a raising of consciousness town hall. So that's my favorite uh, documentary about education beyond the bricks. Mm. I got to check that out. I got to check that out. Yeah, please. Um, I'm surprised you didn't say movie. I did read in one of your books you mentioned about. I like the education system is like bashed in movies and shows and it's like oh. the worst thing. <laughs> and I wrote a couple of articles about that. You know, one of my dearest friends is Talib Kweli's father. You know, Talib Kweli, who used to be part of Black Star. Yes, yes, yes. Incredible um, just performer, hip-hop artist, thinker, philosopher. So his father and I, Perry Green, uh, well, I'll be seeing in another week, we decided that we would take Beyond the Bricks, which was my favorite documentary, and look at some of these Hollywood films and how they stereotypically portrayed black boys in particular, black and Latino boys. And this was also part of building the racial literacy about around critical media. How do you really look at these films 
and see the stereotypes that are there because a lot of, let's say, white teachers or even black teachers will look at a stand and deliver or a 187 or dangerous minds or whatever these films are and think, well, that's how it goes down in urban schools. And I think, honestly, when a lot of white teachers who do not go to school with black children, they learn about how black children are in schools through Hollywood films. And so there's a racial literacy that needs to be built around that. So what we did is that we looked at these the opening scenes of these five Hollywood films and the opening scene of the documentary Beyond the Bricks. Mm, that is so interesting. Because um, yes, the difference. I was just watching somebody's post. They mentioned like, did you ever like think about like in Juice where Omar Epps' character, you know, he's a high school kid and he's like dating, you know, this woman who's like mid. She seems like mid mid age, divorce kind of thing, and mm-hmm. they having like a sexual relationship. And when I watched it, I didn't think anything of it. It was just like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it over sexualizes our young boys. It you know m- makes them men you know, hyper-masculized masculinity. It also looks like black women are predators on young. I mean, there's so many messages in that one scene. And any, can I just say this, that you bring that up? Anytime we've ever heard in the news about a teacher sleeping with uh, a a student, it's usually white women. I'm not saying that it has never been black women, but all of the stories that I know like, what is that Tammy Lafernu, the very, very famous one back in the 90s, where the boy was Filipino and she was a white teacher, a white I female teacher. Yeah. Most of these cases, you remember that case. Mm-hmm. And yet, what is Hollywood putting up? The first thing we see when we're introduced to the Omar Epps character. We have to have more critical media. We have to have racial literacy around the cartoons around the television shows, the movies that we're seeing, because those messages are deeply embedded. Unless you have racial literacy, you just take it as normal. There it is, man. Oof. That was a deep one. All right. Um, who... you, you brought that out. <laughs> <laughs> who have been um, some of your favorite activists? Oh, my gosh. That's easy. I just saw her actually the other day, yesterday. Saturday, I went to a memorial for a dear friend, Kathy Boudin, um, activist against like incarceration. And one of her classmates and the person who eulogized her was Angela Davis. Um, and if I had my sneakers right next to you, because I have a pair of kicks from this country uh, company, Melanin Full, and it just has pictures of my favorite activists. It's my way that I take my ancestors and my contemporary, like, activists, uh, icons with me. So there's Frederick Douglass, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, Angela Davis. Um, I think they're on there, but, um, you know, Malcolm is very, very, very important to me. And he hangs in my office at TC and Malcolm is important to me because whenever I am even thinking about being afraid of speaking up, I think about the courage that Malcolm had. I think about Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, Mississippi Freedom Party as a black woman, how she dared to be in front of all of those white people and say what she said. And so uh, I would have to say Fannie Lou, but Malcolm is very, very, very important to me. If I had my phone hereby, I carry him with him on my phone, too. 
he's on the back of my phone and it says, if you have no critics, then you probably aren't uh, doing anything that will make a difference. Wow. Damn, I never heard that one before. I got to remember that one. Yeah. And that inspires me because even when people hear this and, you know, my work is rooted in love and it's a love for liberation. I want my people to be free. I also want people to be free of their stereotypes and all of those things because you're not being fully human. If you've got to hold on to a stereotype that somebody is less than you, then something's wrong with you. Tony Morrison said that, right? So I really have this deep desire for people to get free. And so hearing some of the things that I said may not feel comfortable for them. But if you're really trying to get free and set others free, uh, Sister Elder Auntie Tony Morrison said that too, that the job of a free person is to set someone else free. So if people are hearing things and being impacted by it in a negative way, chances are they're probably not deep into their racial literacy and they're still not free. Mm. Man, I could snap. That was poetry. All right. Um, one of your, one of your mentors was uh, the great, one of my favorite people, Gil Noble. Um, what, what, mm. what have you learned from this man? Like just all these years. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. Wow. You are amazing. And you know, Gil just, what did he teach me just to love my blackness and all of it, whether it's the sister or brother in the struggle or Robert Mugabe who pushed against those white folks in Rhodesia and got his country back or Bob Marley who used his music as a form of activism and consciousness raising or my black mother just to love my blackness and to love black people. That's what Gil taught me by example because he loved black people. And for the 25 years that he was on WABC, they tried to get him off for 24 years. (laughs) Like that show, like it is, Mm -hmm. the service that he gave to us was incredible. And there's never been anything like it since. And might not be because it might've been exactly what needed to happen during those 25, almost 30 years he was on the air. Agreed, agreed. Um, What's been your favorite life gem that anybody has ever given you? My life gem? You mean like a physical or something that someone said to me? Uh, Something someone said to you that really sparked you or kind of really challenged you to do something different. Well, one scripture when I was introduced, I don't know who introduced me to the scripture. might have been a Sunday school teacher or a mentor uh, in the book of James, to whom much is given, much is required. So that just changed my life because I said, the more that I know, it is required of me than to teach others. In terms of a physical thing, I have it right here in front of me, is this heart where my daughter, Olivia, she was about 15. She had it inscribed, Dear Mom. And then she wrote her own sayings about how much she appreciates me and how much she loves me. And I keep it right next to me. So this is something that I really, really do prize because, um, you know, raising a young girl of color is not easy. And sometimes, you know, she might think I'm the enemy. I said, I'm not the enemy. I'm the be- outside of God. I'm the best friend in your whole life. I'm the best friend you'll have. And I will always love you and uh, tell you the truth. 
So this is a symbol of, you know, just some really hard times in raising her, but also some really beautiful times. Powerful, powerful. All right. Um, this is much of, you know, the study and the work that you do. So um, what have been, I guess, some of your favorite books for specifically dealing with like black boys or that you would recommend black boys read? Mm. And then we'll get Actually, into black you know, I girls. Always feel like, I always feel like I have something right there, right? So anyway, there is over on my mantle a book about love and masculinity by Bell Hooks. Uh, Bell Hooks, um, just about love in general. Um, Anne Ferguson, who wrote about, uh, I mean, the title of the book is not great, but uh, she really pulls back the curtain in her book, Bad Boys, about these stereotypes of how teachers and the system sees black boys, that they label them as bad. So I would have to say that's one of the favorite books that kind of opened up my consciousness about the stereotypes that are really held. Um, anything written by James Baldwin. Um, and James Baldwin actually loved black women so deeply. Uh, that's why I love him. But as a black boy himself, eventually a black man, he was smart. He was outspoken. He was an example of, you know, our shining, the shining stars that we are. So anything written by James Baldwin, particularly his, um, if Bill Street could talk and go tell it on the mountain, which is a powerful autobiography of his. Um, so it's novels, it's textbooks, there's articles, you know, I have favorite scholars, uh, Sean Harper, who does a lot of work on black boys is important to me. Um, David Kirkland, um, who does work on black boys, Prudence Carter, who's a woman, but does work on black boys, Pedro Nogueira does work on black boys. You know, so I have in my mind a whole litany or list of folks that are my go-to folks, um, men and women, um, that lift up black boys and Latinx boys as well. Got it. Got it. Got to check some of those out. Um, what about mm -hmm. black girls? Oh my gosh. Yeah. One of my favorite subjects because moi, <laughs> I am a black girl, black woman. Oh my goodness. Poets, uh, Mahogany Brown, Alexis Pauline Gums, uh, Goldie Muhammad, Bettina Love, Venus Evans Winters, uh, Ruth Nicole Brown, Autumn Griffin, a new young sister that we're co-writing a book called, um, it's all about black love, uh, for girls, right? We're, we're focusing on black girls and love and trying to time it right around the 25th anniversary of Bell Hooks's all about love and really looking at her framework and inviting other black women and girls and partnership to write about black girls. So again, just always trying to keep putting the work out there, but there are so many uh, scholars that I turn to. Those are just a few. Deetra Price Dennis, my co-author. There's just many of us out there constantly doing the work to keep it alive. Mm. Appreciate those. I definitely got to check those out as well. Um, so much of the work that you do centers on like trying to really transition into a world where education is something that's supposed to be for black children. So let's say that we transition and we just flip the camera in another direction and we have this system, this educational system that is working for black children. What what does it look like? Would you be able to paint us that picture? Mm. Oh, my gosh. With pleasure. We definitely see more black teachers. 
doesn't have to be the complete inversion because I think actually diversity is good for folks. So I would want my daughter to learn from Southeast Asian people, Japanese people, um, but black people. Um, there is a curriculum that properly and with integrity tells multiple stories of our blackness going all the way back and removing the stigma that was really pushed in our minds from like Africa, uh, Haiti, all of these beautiful, rich black countries until they were um, either colonized or taken advantage of. Right. So you see a richness of curriculum of blackness. You see a diversity of teachers. But if it's mostly black students, you see a large amount of black teachers and principals. So the leadership is reflected of the children. You'll actually see, you know, more trips. Like when we talk about like field trips, the field trips are to Ghana. The field trips are to, you know, different parts of the world of the diaspora where there are black people. The people coming into as guest speakers, the assemblies, all of this are people just adding to the layer and the richness of what it is to be black. So, and then there's opportunities that that kind of education actually would complement and be wanted and desired in a world that would then offer like this opportunity for a, a multiplicity of jobs and opportunities for our children who were steeped in who they are to then walk out into the world and actually be paid to do jobs to further understand who they are. So whether that's journalism or healthcare or law, right? So I'm not exactly saying it's Wakanda, but it would be a world where what happened in school would just make them be the citizens that they needed to be in a society that would welcome them and honor them for who they are. That's my vision. Powerful, powerful, powerful. And, um, How does that sound? That sounds, Is that a world you want to live in? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, that's a world... That's the world I want. That's a world worth striving for. Because that's the world that white kids have, actually. Ooh, ooh. And that's the world that white kids have, Man. actually. They can go through their school, all their schooling life, get their education and come out and get a job that actually honors them for who they are. Mm. So again, although it is freedom dreaming, it is actually reality for most white people in this country. Oof. Well said, well said, well said. Cause some people might be like, man, this is far fetched. <laughs> it's already happened. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm-mm. Exactly. Something to think about, man. You've given us so much to think about. Um, you just are doing so much amazing oh, work, man. Um, looking down the line, you know, where when a documentary is made about you and your work, um, what is that legacy, that piece that wow. you want to leave behind, you know, for us and for the culture? Hmm. You know, that I loved my people, that I loved others as well, and try to always get them to think deeply about their own humanity that, um, you know, that I was focused and that I was determined and I was deliberate and I didn't waver in what I thought was possible. That's what I would love. That's, that's, I mean, huge. There's so many people that need to have documentaries written about them. I don't see me as one of them, but if something were to happen one day, that's the message that I would want. 
And pretty much in the words of my, 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 one of my students, I remember being invited, Keisha McIntosh, she's a doctor in Maryland, doctor, a PhD, and she had this button, and this was five years ago, it has, I've not been able to let this go, and the button said, said, what kind of ancestor will you be? And you know, I've been trying to answer that question, brother, since I saw that button. So if, like the children, my daughter, the people I leave behind, the students that I teach, if they can say that I was an ancestor that was worthy of my time on this earth, that I did for others, I tried to foster love, I tried to push for equity and justice, then I'd be cool with that. And um, I already see I'd that. I'd be all right with that. I already see that and um, so much more. <laughs> Uh, again, uh, Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for everything you're doing, the work you're continuing to do. Um, we usually ask our guests to leave us with their favorite quote and what it means to them. But I did, I did hear a poem you wrote about liberation that I thought was pretty powerful. I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot, if you remember it, but um, you can give us your, oh, your, your quote. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or maybe that poem. <laughs> well, there's one that I do have. I do have one that's memorized. I don't know if it's the same one, but it is related to education mm. and it's called just us and it plays mm. on justice, okay. right? So justice yes. here is my invitation for you to bend towards justice. My arc of self bends in favor of love, asking hard questions and waiting for answers that don't offer conclusions, just more wonderings about how to live a life worthy of the children who come after us. There it is, man. Um, May we be worthy. Absolutely. May we be worthy of the children who are with us now. Well said, well said. Man, I'm definitely going to rewind through this this interview because I feel like you just dropped so many gems on us and so many things worthy of thinking about um where where can people find you those that are interested in your literature or um catching some more work that you're doing documentaries and um anything else oh yeah i love to share what i'm doing i don't want to be so me centric but i do want people to know i'm out here doing this and so the first place i would say is yolandaseelyruiz.com Sorry about the telephone. No problem. <laughs> com. That's my website. And then find me on IG at Yoli underscore Sealy Ruiz. Find me on Twitter at Ruiz Sealy at R-U-I-Z-S-E-A-L-E-Y. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn and all of these other places. But yes. Yes. All right. Um, there it is. Uh, thank you for listening today, folks. Um, if you are not inspired to go out there and teach something, I don't know what to tell you, man, because I'm ready to like, <laughs> I'm ready to go, man. Um, thank Open you. Open your own school. Yeah, no, I, I'll it, come and I'll come and teach for you. It's already in the, it's already in the, in the thoughts. So, you know, hopefully we, we can make that into a reality at some point. Um, but I'm deeply inspired, Dr. Ruiz. So, um, thank you for everything. Thank you for coming through your work and continue. And listeners, please share Dr. Ruiz's work and, um, you know, support her work, support her literature. Um, she's doing work for us. So definitely support. And of course, remember, your mind 
is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G. And I will see you next time on Mastermind.